Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And today, a very special guest, former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanon, who almost gave his life defending the Capitol on January 6th. You know, I thought of Officer Fanon on January 6th when I first heard the news of the October 28 assault on Paul Pelosi, husband of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, because although they happened 22 months and 3,000 miles apart, those two events are closely related. They were both aimed, at least in part, against the Speaker, and they were both the inevitable result of ugly rhetoric by supporters of Donald Trump, aimed at those who deny Trump's big lie that he and not Joe Biden won the last election. After all the vicious personal attacks we've heard from Donald Trump and other Republicans in the last year or more, we might be shocked when violence occurs, but we shouldn't be surprised. After all, words have consequences. Officer Fanon reminds us in his powerful new book about January 6th called Hold the Line. The consequences of Trump and his election deniers is that five police officers lost their lives on January 6th. Michael Fanon was brutally beaten and tasered, and Paul Pelosi almost lost his life in a brutal attack last week. Michael Fanon is now on a mission to see that those responsible for the violence, starting with Donald Trump himself, are held accountable. Mike Fanon, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, Mike, I just finished your book, Hold the Line. I, I, I got to tell you, I haven't been so blown away by a book in a long time. A very, very powerful account of what happened on January 6th and what's happened since in your life. But, And I want to talk to you about the book. But first, uh, I'd like to ask you about um, sort of a breaking news we're all dealing with. So back on January 6th, uh, an armed mob stormed the United States Capitol. Last week, a lone assailant attacked Paul Pelosi, the husband of the Speaker of the House. Do you see any connection between those two events? Absolutely. Um, This is another individual that was inspired by the continuing violent rhetoric uh, coming from the former president and his allies. Um, He continues to lie about the results of the 2020 election. Um, He also spouts other conspiracy theories, and they are resonating with uh, many Americans uh, and are seen as a a call to action. And I think that's what you have um, that played out here at, uh, at the Speaker's home in San Francisco. You point out in your book, uh, I think you use the phrase, words have consequences, right? And Yes. We've seen those consequences on January 6th and on October 28th. 
absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that <clears throat> what's what's amiss is that um, many Americans, many politicians don't realize the fact or are trying to ignore the fact that on January 6th, uh, Donald Trump declared war on America. Uh, and he didn't do it figuratively. Uh, he did it literally. He amassed an army of his supporters and he sent them to attack the Capitol building. Um, he continues to inspire them through violent uh, rhetoric. Uh, and what you have is individuals that are willing to act on that because they think that they are at war, uh, that they are fighting to preserve democracy and that they are patriots, uh, when in reality, uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. Do you think that those uh, politicians, and I guess they all happen to be Republicans, who downplayed the violence on January 6th or who called the mob patriots uh, are somehow responsible for this violence? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, these are government officials. Uh, they're paid for by our tax dollars. They're on the government payroll. Uh, they have an obligation to denounce these conspiracy theories, to call out the former president and his allies, uh, and they refuse to do so. I think there's a variety of reasons why. Um, some of them, it's you know, as simple as they uh, they believe it, um, or, or and then there's others, you know, the, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world that just don't see it as politically advantageous. Uh, and so they're willing to turn a blind eye to it uh, as long as it helps them, um, you know, further their political career. And what role does Donald Trump play in all of this? I mean, Donald Trump is the, uh, you know, the circus master. Mm. Um, he is the one who has the biggest platform. Um, he is the leader of the Republican Party. And when he repeats these conspiracy theories, uh, he lends credibility to them. Um, and, you know, like I said, there's a whole host of Americans that believe that, uh, you know, he is America's savior uh, and that by supporting him and by you know, acting on his direction that they are patriots. It is almost like a religious cult, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I it's it is a religious cult minus the religion. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and with a strange figure uh, at the top of it, I might add. So uh, when I picked up your book, I was um, a little surprised, but pleased to see on the front cover of your book is uh, what we in the business call a blurb, and actually also on the back cover of your book, a blurb from the speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you had an opportunity uh, post-January 6th uh, to meet with her, um, I think on more than one occasion. Um, you know, she's been demonized uh, by uh, a lot of people. What was your impression of uh, Speaker Pelosi? I mean, there's been quite a few times in my career where I have been inspired by people who were in leadership roles within the police department that I worked for. Um, 
you know, I think the first person I was ever inspired by was uh, my former chief, uh, Charles Ramsey. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on January 6th, there was, you know, my friend and, and, uh, you know, official with our department, uh, Commander Ramey Kyle. Uh, the leadership that he brought to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel uh, was one of the most inspirational experiences of my life. Uh, and my my former chief, uh, Robert Conti. That being said, there are just people that you interact with that are, they exude uh, leadership qualities. I mean, listen, I don't pretend to agree with or even know all of the nuances of Nancy Pelosi's politics. But Nancy Pelosi is a leader. Um, she is a statesman in every characteristic. Um, you know, she's just somebody that I found to be all, and I, I was inspired by uh, by her leadership. And then to learn what she did on January sixth uh, in the last uh, mm. select committee hearing to see mm-hmm. the videos of her. I mean, I, I said in the immediate aftermath of that. It was clear to me who the commander in chief was on January 6th, and it was not Donald Trump. It was Nancy Pelosi with the assistance of Mitch McConnell uh, and Chuck Schumer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and maybe Mike Pence doing his part there, too. Right. Um, but but uh, there was no doubt, never any doubt that Speaker Pelosi was on your side. None whatsoever. And I mean, she also was incredibly personal. You know, uh, I, the first time I met with her, she spent over an hour uh, listening to me, you know, ramble on about my experiences on January 6th. Um, you know, she's reached out to members of my family. Uh, I mean, she has been, you know, she's been incredible. Yeah. Uh, so contrast that with your meeting with uh, Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, we're talking to opposite ends of the spectrum. I found Kevin McCarthy to be uh, one of the most indifferent individuals that I've ever had contact with in my entire life, which includes two decades in the police department. You know, it was very clear to me from, you know, minute one in that meeting that uh, I and uh, Brian Sicknick's mother, Gladys, and Harry Dunn were an inconvenience to him. Uh, he was meeting with us because of the optics. Um, it had been become problematic. He was getting questions in the media as to why he hadn't met with us. It took a long time to get that meeting, right? It, it took months. And there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, I had contacted his office multiple times. He had announced to the media that he had reached out to me, but I had declined to meet with him, which wasn't true. It was almost comical. Uh, and as I recall, uh, your your ask in that meeting, right, was not that he come out and attack Donald Trump, but simply that he defend the police officers. Correct. Right? Yeah. I mean, I had a handful of asks. One of them was that he denounce the 21 House Republicans that voted against awarding um, the United States Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department, the Congressional Gold Medal, uh, in reference to their response to the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, I also asked him to uh, denounce publicly the um, what I later 
came to call the the tinfoil hat brigade of the Republican Party, which is the Paul Gozars, Marjorie Taylor Greens, Andrew Clyde's, uh, Louis Gohmert's, the individuals that were um, spreading conspiracy theories, not just about myself, but also about many other officers and and the total response that day, also mischaracterizing the level of violence that we experienced. I think if you remember, it was Andrew Clyde that called it a normal tourist day. Right. Yeah. Um, And then in addition to that, I asked him to denounce the uh, conspiracy theory, which at that time was just starting to come out that it was a FBI um, instigated false flag operation uh, involving FBI informants and plants. And coincidentally, obviously, he neglected to do any of those things. And it was those conspiracy theories that led for a lone gunman uh, to attack an FBI facility armed with an AR-15 months later. And so, you know, you see the correlation between conspiracy theories, rhetoric uh, that aren't just relegated to these outermost fringes. It's not just the Alex Joneses of the world that are, you know, spewing these lies, you now have it coming from, uh, at least in some people's minds, the credible mouth of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, And despite the fact that many people may be able to recognize it for what it is, there are still um, millions of Americans that believe that he is a uh, respected source of information. And that's dangerous. So I want to come back. I want to come back to January sixth and the account that you give uh, in, in the book. Again, the book "Hold the Line: The Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul" by Michael Fanon, former uh, officer with the Metropolitan Police Department of uh, the sit- capital city of Washington. On January sixth, Mike, you weren't assigned to the Capitol. How'd you end up there? Why'd you go there? Just to give you a little bit of background about myself, I began my career in law enforcement uh, just after 9-11. I think like many Americans, I felt a call to service in the wake of the worst terrorist attack that we had experienced as a country at that time. And so I joined the United States Capitol Police. And while I quickly learned that I loved law enforcement, I knew that the Capitol Police was not the place for me. Mm -hmm. And I lateraled... uh, about a year later to the Metropolitan Police Department, which is the more traditional law enforcement agency in Washington, D.C. Essentially, if you call 911, we're the ones that respond. Um, That being said, I worked almost my entire career in small mission units, uh, specifically targeting uh, narcotics traffickers and violent criminals. Uh, I was working in one of those units on January 6th, Uh, And while the plan for the day uh, was to conduct a undercover heroin buy as part of an investigation that my office was working on, um, the events of that late morning into the early afternoon um, made me change the plan, essentially. Um, I mean, I, I heard, I remember late morning reports from officers that were working 
uh, about the individuals that were outside of the security perimeter on the ellipse that were in possession of firearms Mm -hmm. and the arrests that were being made and how disturbing it was to hear, uh, you know, an officer call out an individual that was in a tree with an AR-15 rifle. Um, So I knew at that point that um, this was not going to be an ordinary demonstration, Right. uh, that there was not only the propensity for a level of violence that I don't think um, our department had experienced, but that it was almost imminent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to hear this large group um, break off from the rally and start heading towards the Capitol, I mean, I knew what was uh, going to ensue. And so when I heard around 1 p.m. that, you know, the police officers um, were being attacked, that they had abandoned the outermost perimeter and were retreating up the Capitol steps. Uh, by that time, I had already made the decision that I was going to respond. And so when I got to my office, I told my partner that we were going to go. And mm-hmm. for the first time in about a decade, I put on my uniform and responded to the Capitol. Once you arrived on the scene, you and your partner get up to the Capitol. What did you see? What did you discover? So we parked our car on D Street, um, mm-hmm. just south of the Capitol complex, and we walked up. South Capitol Street, uh, past the Longworth House office building. And I remember thinking to myself how eerily quiet it was. Hmm. You know, this is an area, if you're familiar with Capitol Hill, there's constant pedestrian traffic, the hustle and bustle of, you know, uh, House and Senate staffers, members of Congress, visitors. Uh, There was nothing. It was a ghost town. And it wasn't until we got to Independence Avenue that we kind of realized what was taking place. Independence Avenue was filled with police vehicles. I mean, dozens, if not hundreds of police vehicles parked all up and down the street. And on the North side, uh, you could see the police barriers that had been abandoned as officers had retreated back closer to the Capitol. That being said, I could not see anything from that vantage point on the West Terrace. Yeah. So all you could see was, I guess what I would describe as maybe a few hundred uh, demonstrators. And they were yelling and screaming and chanting and um, just kind of milling about. But at that point, I didn't see any um, violence, at least not directed towards law enforcement. Once I got inside the Capitol building, I made my way down the Hall of Columns uh, and entered the crypt, which is the circular area just beneath the rotunda. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was there that I got a, uh, or I heard a distress call come out for the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Um, Jimmy, my partner, and I kind of got our bearings and, and figured out which way was west and made our way down a staircase from the crypt into the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. And so just to kind of paint the picture, the Lower West Terrace Tunnel is about 200, maybe 250 feet long. And it's about as wide as maybe four or five adults standing shoulder to shoulder. Uh, This is the tunnel that 
the president-elect walks out of onto the inaugural stage to take the oath of office. And when I got down there, the first person I encountered uh, was a guy named Bill Bogner. He's a sergeant with the Metropolitan Police Department. Bill and I had known each other for years, and he was an administrative guy. Uh, He worked as a desk Mm -hmm. sergeant in the first district for a number of years. That's how I knew him. And then he ended up going to the academy uh, where he also worked in an administrative role. The reason I say that is because Bill was representative of the MPD response that day. Hundreds of officers self-deployed, took it upon themselves, heard the distress calls to respond to the Capitol uh, and help the U.S. Capitol Police in any way that they could. A lot of people had this misconception that the response that day was an incredibly organized effort. It was not. Um, It was several members of our leadership and command structure piecing together a response and a defense of the Capitol from really what was like a hodgepodge of responding officers. There were some you know, full civil disturbance platoons that respond. But I would say at least 50% of the response was just individual officers taking it upon themselves to go. Hmm. Bill had been sprayed in the face with bear spray. He could not see anything. And I remember this surreal moment where I told him who I was and uh, he reached out his hand and shook my hand. And I think he thought, Jimmy and I were part of some larger uh, cavalry that was coming to relieve them, but it was just the two of us. So from there, I could see through this set of double doors. They had um, glass panes in the double doors. I could see through it. I could see these officers standing inside the tunnel, and I could see this white haze uh, just kind of floating in the air. Um, once I walked through the doors, I realized what it was. It was CS gas, this residual gas that was still floating in the air. And that shit hits you like a ton of bricks. Um, I did not have a gas mask Mm -hmm. and immediately overtakes you and makes it difficult to see, difficult to breathe. And the the mob was there uh, confronting, right, these police officers who are trying to hold the line. Yeah, so inside the tunnel, you had probably about 40 D.C. police officers and a half a dozen U.S. Capitol police officers. Uh, And they were holding back what I would later learn was literally 10 to 15,000 rioters who were trying to enter uh, that entranceway into the Capitol from the West Terrace um, that was seen as the, you know, main entranceway. And so it became this kind of funnel for all of this violence. They were armed? Oh, yeah. In addition to, uh, contrary to what Ron Johnson can, can, <laughs> continues to say, uh, they did have firearms. Uh, there were many handguns recovered. Um, including a a handgun that was recovered from the tunnel that uh, was in Commander Ray Mikhail's pocket for for most of the day. Um, In addition to that, though, they were using metal pipes, uh, metal batons. They used scaffolding. 
and bicycle racks as battering rams to try to defeat our uh, police line. They used stolen police equipment. Uh, they used chemical irritants. And they also used uh, commercial-grade fireworks, um, which you can imagine the percussion of a mortar going off uh, inside of a confined space. Mm. I mean, it was, uh, it was deafening. Uh, and this violence was all directed against police officers, including yourself. And you describe, and uh, we've seen you on television, talk about how you were dragged out, beaten up, uh, tasered several times. Did you, did you ever, I guess, kind of a stupid question, I guess you must have feared for your life. Oh, absolutely. I, I knew that there was a strong possibility that, um, that I wouldn't go home. Yeah, I realized that the moment that I walked into the tunnel. Yeah. I mean, and you saw that, you you talk about, you saw that in their eyes. I mean, they were out to get you and other police officers, right? The hate in their eyes. I mean, they were out. One of them said, kill him, kill you, right? Kill him with his own gun. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually became a chant. Uh, so there were a number of individuals that were in the crowd that were yelling that out. Um, and, and one of the ways that I describe to people um, the ferocity and brutality uh, and really just savage behavior is that, you know, when I was pulled off the police line out into the crowd, I was probably about 250, maybe 300 feet away from my fellow officers. Uh, and out there, I posed no threat, no obstacle to any of these individuals that were trying to make their way into the Capitol. Right. Um, yeah, I was not an impediment, but yet they still chose to beat me, um, use a taser on me. Uh, so it wasn't just about getting past me or getting past the officers. It was about inflicting pain. It was about physically beating them yeah. In the middle of this, Donald Trump issues a statement from the White House where he says, among other things, we are the law and order party uh, and our people up on the Hill, there's no violence. They are hugging and kissing police officers. How'd you respond to that, Michael? Yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think at that point it's any surprise to really shouldn't be a surprise to any Americans that Donald Trump is full of shit. Um, I mean, there's absolutely nothing in that statement that is accurate. Um, it is a complete and utter lie. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on the Bill Press Potter. Got to do that, uh, Mike, uh, and then come back and talk about post-January 6th and some of the response you got from members of Congress and from your own police union, as you detail in the book, Hold the Line. Hold on, we'll be right back. Well, you know, friends, the last few weeks, we've uh, asked your help for um, some very important Senate races on the line on November 8th. Uh, those Senate races in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Well, with this last chance before Election Day, we want to remind you about one more that's really, really important, and that's in the state of Wisconsin. 
where probably the worst U.S. senator in the whole Senate right now, Ron Johnson, is trying to get another term, which he doesn't deserve. I mean, this is a guy who's one of the chief election deniers, number one. Number two, he's a guy, as Michael Fanon has told us, who denied that there were any arms held by the armed mob on January 6th. After all, he says, I didn't see any arms, so you can't call it an armed mob. This is also the senator who voted against creating a commission to investigate the insurrection. Ron Johnson's got to go, and the man to do it, man to put in place, is Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, our Democratic candidate in Wisconsin, who is one of the most qualified, one of the most promising young political leaders in the nation, Mandela Barnes. MandelaBarnes.com. So please check out his website, MandelaBarnes.com, and send whatever help you can to make Mandela Barnes the next Democratic senator from the state of Wisconsin. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Our guest today, Mike Fallone, a former uh, police officer with the Metropolitan Police Department on January 6th, who uh, himself deployed, self-deployed, if you will, on January 6th. His new book about that, the events of that day and beyond called Hold the Line. Uh, Mike, again, welcome back. Uh, in the weeks after uh, January 6th, there was a movement to create a special commission to investigate what happened on January 6th find out who is responsible and hold them accountable. You and a couple of your fellow officers visited uh, members of the United States Senate, and I believe the House too, to get to line up their support for this bipartisan independent investigation. Uh, how'd that go? I, I mean, I don't need to tell you we were unsuccessful. Um, you know, there were a few Republican senators that I think really had um, had already made up their minds to support us but the vast majority had already made up their minds that they were not. Uh, and so it really was a, a just a waste of time. Um, I went there for a number of reasons, but foremost in my mind was supporting Gladys Sicknick, uh, whose son Brian died as a result of um, 
his efforts to defend the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, and so I felt like, um, I mean, it was, it was just, it was embarrassing to see the way that these people, uh, treated the mother of a dead police officer. Mm. What kind of excuses did they give for not wanting, uh, an official investigation? Uh, I mean, everybody had the same excuse. It was, uh, it was going to become a partisan witch hunt. Um, it was, you know, that they were, they wanted to focus on the security, um, failures, the law enforcement failures on January 6th, which, you know, I agreed wholeheartedly that, uh, those should be focused on. Um, but I should also point out the fact that there was legislation put in place to address some of those and the Republicans, uh, shot that down as well. So I, I'm not exactly sure what, um, what they were referring to, but none of those things uh, have come to fruition. Do you also point out that uh, several of them uh, said, well, yeah, we can look at January 6th, but we got to look at the Black Lives Matter protests too, right? Like uh, they were one and the same. What do, what, what's your response to that argument? Yeah, I said um, attempting to overthrow a CBS and attempting to overthrow the United States government are two uh, completely different things. I mean, I can't remember exactly the words that Adam Kinzinger used. He's much more polished and eloquent than I am. But if you're incapable of seeing that there are, you know, no no parallels between those two events other than the fact that a lot of police officers were injured, um, you know, but at no point in time did we feel as though America America's democracy was in peril throughout the summertime riots. Now they mm-hmm. were awful. And a lot of my friends, people I'd worked with my whole career, uh, were severely injured. Some of them were injured, um, to the point where they had to end their careers. Uh, and so, yes, that was a horrible event. Did I feel like, uh, I was, you know, our democracy was in peril. No, I did not. Nor do I think did any other police officer that participated in that. Um, but, you know, it, it was what I saw as this disingenuous argument as to uh, why we shouldn't simply focus on the events of January 6th. And if you expected anybody to have your back, it was your fellow police officers, particularly the police officers union that you had been uh, for many years, a member of you and uh, officer Harry Dunn went to meet with them. You didn't find much support. Yeah, I didn't have any expectation um, of receiving any support. I mean, I'm intimately familiar with the politics of the uh, local DC police union, and then also our national fraternal or fraternal order of police. Uh, and they had become, uh, very Trumpy, uh, mm. under, you know, his administration. Um, and I think that, well, I mean, I, I never got any outreach from any members of the union after January 6th, zero. Uh, and if anyone ever said any otherwise, they were being disingenuous. Um, I think I got a text message from Gregory Pemberton, who's the president of our local on January 7th. And his text message included a thumbs up emoji and a question mark. Um, so him saying that he reached out um, is a load of garbage. 
Mm. Uh, the national FOP headed by Pat Yost. I mean, Pat Yost is well known as a um, uh, Trump sycophant. He had tried unsuccessfully for a number of years to get positions within the administration uh, and, of course, never reached out. But in addition to the individual outreach, uh, there were no statements given by the Fraternal Order of Police uh, in support of the officers that defended the Capitol, other than some very uh, loosely worded, disingenuous statements, but not what you would typically see from the Fraternal Order of Police. Listen, anytime that Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib opens their mouth about an officer-involved shooting, the FOP is there to shoot them down and yell and scream uh, in defense of the ca- of the uh, officers. In this case, you had people like Paul Gozar calling an officer who was cleared in a police-involved shooting of Ashley Babbitt a murderer. Mm-hmm. Did the FOP say anything? Not a thing. Uh, you had individuals from Fox News that were saying I was a crisis actor, uh, awarding me a um, an Emmy for best performance uh, in an action movie. Did they say anything in my defense? No. Um, so, I mean, to me, it was clear that they chose, like many people in politics, yep. uh, they chose politics over people. Toward the end of your book, Mike, you say, I had a singular mission, respect for officers who responded to defend the Capitol on January 6th, and accountability for those responsible for and those involved in the insurrection, period. That's your mission. Um, How do you feel You've how much progress have you made in accomplishing your mission? And is that still your mission? It is very much so. Uh, and I mean, I, I feel like I am a, uh, as of right now, uh, failing miserably. Because? I mean, I've yet to uh, achieve either. Uh, the officers that fought alongside of me in the Lower West Terrace Tunnel and um, hundreds of other officers that fought bravely on January 6th have yet to be appropriately uh, acknowledged for their efforts. Uh, there was a Congressional Medal awarded to the Metropolitan Police Department and to the United States Capitol Police, uh, but not to individual officers. And I've said many times institutions did not defend the Capitol on January 6th. Individuals did. And so if there was ever a time where we should be pinning medals on chests, it's now. Those officers deserve to be acknowledged for what they did. Um, And as far as accountability for those responsible for January 6th, I mean, the DOJ is doing a hell of a job. I mean, this was almost an insurmountable task to investigate uh, these 800 plus um, crimes committed um, on January 6th. That being said, Donald Trump still walking free. Um, Many of his allies that engaged in this effort or scheme to defraud the American people um, 
which I believe the select committee showed a correlation between that effort and the violence that was committed at their behest on January 6th. You know, this is a country of laws. Donald Trump is not above the law. Donald Trump should be arrested and he should be tried. And we should all accept the results of that trial. I have to say, Mike Fanon, um, I don't think you failed uh, at all. I think, look, the, the mission is not yet accomplished, but uh, I think you've succeeded admirable, admirably in telling, in keeping us on our toes and not letting us forget what happened uh, and keeping us you know, aware of what happened and keeping us as, I would hope, allies in your mission to see that uh, those responsible are held uh, accountable. Mike Vanone, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today as well. And thank you for your courage on January 6th. And thank you for all of your courage since. Again, the book is Hold the Line, the Insurrection and One Cop's Battle for America's Soul. Um, Mike, keep the faith, keep working. We count on you and um, we'll stay in touch. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap for today's podcast with Michael Fanone, his new book again, Hold the Line. It is an incredible read. You think you know what happened on January 6th? Uh Uh-uh. This takes you right into the heart of the action with a man who almost gave his life there. Uh, It's a very powerful book. There's a link in the episode notes to today's podcast to get your copy of Hold the Line. Hey, it's only about 200 pages. You will read it uh, overnight the way I did. Uh, And for today, that's it. But we'll be back on Friday with the last roundtable before the midterms. So with our panelists, our political reporters, we'll take a rundown of all the important races uh, and uh, wrap up whatever other news there is from Washington uh, this week. So we'll be back Friday. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and get out and vote early. Vote early. I'd like to say vote early and often. But let me just say, vote early. Get that vote in. It really counts. And, of course, vote for all your Democratic candidates. We'll see you Friday on the Roundtable and the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.